0: Good morning. You may wonder about my choice of a text, especially from Deuteronomy chapter 12. There are several reasons. One is it's shorter than the text if we were reading in Judges chapter 17 and chapter 18. The other is that there are several important points that are made in this text in Deuteronomy which bear directly upon our text in the book of Judges. There is the uh, emphasis upon doing away with all idols, and in our text, uh, idols will be made and and devoted to God. Um, There is the emphasis upon worship in the central place, that is, in the one place that God has designated as the place where he is to be worshipped. That is violated in our text there is the statement that Israel is not to continue doing what it has been doing, namely doing what is right in their own eyes. That is a repeated statement that we find in our text and in later chapters in Judges. And then notice in verse 28, you should do what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. In other words, you have a choice. You either do what is right as God sees it, Or you do what is right as you see it. And those two are not the same as you know. The last thing in common is verse 19. They are to care for the Levites. We have in these last chapters in the book of Judges uh, two Levites. One in our text and one in the the text that will follow. Uh, And apparently part of the problem there with this uh, traveling Levite is that he has not been cared for. As the law had prescribed. And so you see a lot of correlation between the things in our text and that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Well, we're getting to the end of the book of Judges and it's probably good for us to review where we are. Interestingly, we have two conclusions to the book of Judges. The first is in our text in chapter 17 and 18. And the second will be in chapters 19 through 21. We had two introductions, as you remember, to the book, and that came in chapters 1 through 3. So we have the uh, dual introductions, dual conclusions, and then, of course, the, the mass of the text had to do with Israel's judges from chapter 3, verse 5 on through the end of chapter 16, ending with the death of Samson. But this is a very unique section, and as you begin to read, you see that it is very different territory from what we have uh, been traveling when we were in that section, the main section on Israel's uh, judges. So let's look at some of the uniqueness of it. There is no foreign oppressor in these last chapters. It doesn't talk about the Philistines or or the Amorites or, or any of these other outward nations as being... Uh, an oppressive, dominant ruling force that's making life difficult for Israel. No foreign oppressors. No foreign gods are being worshipped here. Uh, When you look in our text, amazingly, it is God, Yahweh, frequently, Yahweh, who is being worshipped with these idols. So it's an amazing thing. It's not Canaanite religion. It's Israelite religion that has gone south there are no judges. Nobody here in this text, nobody in the last chapters will be described as a judge who is a deliverer of Israel as there were in the previous section. And of course, that statement that is repeated several times, no king, no king in Israel. Interestingly, that expression is found only in the concluding chapters of the book of Judges, not in the earlier chapters. So every time it is found, it is found either in our text or in the last part of the conclusion in chapters 19 through 21. No king in Israel. Obviously, it is looking toward that. And then... The author holds back some key information till the last verses of our text in chapter 18. The last two verses of our text give us two critical pieces of information that he has withheld until the very end and those become very important and influential, I think, to the way in which we ought to view the uh, the text. Another thing that is interesting about this passage is that the author does not... Clearly spell out, as you might expect, in fact, as you might prefer, uh, saying now, they're wrong here, they're wrong here, this is a violation of this text, this is a violation of this commandment over here. The author withholds, uh, his judgment in, in many ways. Now, there are subtleties in the way the author presents his argument, and, and we see from those subtleties that it is slanted so that we understand there's something wrong here. And, and that statement, no king in Israel, every man does what's right in his own eyes, is not an indication that things are going well in Israel at this point in time. But he withholds some of those statements, and I want to talk about why he does so a, a little bit later. So how are we to understand what we read in, in, in these uh, two chapters Well, we obviously need to look at what the author is saying, and one of the key statements is there is no king in Israel, and most often it is followed by every man is doing what's right in his own eyes. That ought to be a big clue. This is not the way religion is to work in Israel. Uh, But beyond that, and the subtleties that the author may be giving us, we just need to think about Israel's history and i think about this in terms of somebody who's reading through the old testament if you've been reading through the old testament then you've read exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy uh, you've read uh, uh, how israel has come in uh, up upon the land in joshua how they have taken the land you've seen god's commandments in the law as to what how they should worship and how they should not. So all of these things should be very familiar to the reader of the Old Testament when they find themselves at this place. These are not uh, foreign things to them, but ought to be very familiar. So when we look at Israel's history, and in particular when we look at the law that God has given, it doesn't take a Rhodes Scholar to figure out that there are lots of serious problems. And and so as we come to this text, I think we ought to do that. Let me suggest to you that in particular when we come to chapter 18, and I, and I think I call that Dan's uh, promise, to uh, the Danites' promised land, you cannot help but see the parallels between what takes place with the Danites and what has taken place with the Israelites. I mean, the, the Israelites sent out spies. Initially they sent out 12 spies, Ten came back with a bad report. Two came back with a good report. And then when you have the spies that are sent out by Joshua, you see, again, their report about how things were. And then you see in chapter 18, here are the Danites. They send out five spies, and they look at the land, and they give their report, and they're going to possess the land. You have to look at the possession of that territory by the tribe of Dan in the light of Israel's possession of the land as you see it in the law and laid out in the book of Judges. And you say to yourself, these don't match up at all. And so I think the author is expecting us to have all those things in our mind as we come to our text. I call this Have It Your Way, Micah's Personalized, Profitable Religion. And, And the first thing we see is is this addition to uh, Micah's religious shrine in verses 1 through 6. That is, the uh, the construction, the making of those two idols, by the way, and the terms that are used for those idols, specifically used in the prohibition in Deuteronomy to say these ought never to be made, and yet that is precisely what takes place. So the first thing you see is Micah, this fellow, by the way, somebody said, and I think it's right, whoever heard a sermon on this Micah, (laughs) you know, if you want to say, our sermon today is going to be about Micah, nobody's going to say, this is the guy I want to hear a sermon about. This guy is a class A jerk. And most people would love to see this passage just disappear. But here is Micah, and he's a thief, and he steals from his mother. I mean, you've you got to say, this does not start well. Interestingly, he steals 1,100 pieces of silver. Does that ring any bells in your mind? It, it's just interesting because, remember, the, the lords of the Philistines each offered Delilah 1,100 pieces of silver. I don't know what there is about that number, 1,100, but somehow somebody's gotten caught up with it. But he steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother, uh, and then she pronounces a curse. I don't know. I haven't heard too many women curse in my life, thankfully. But but can you imagine this this gal um, with her curses? And, and here's her son going around the house. I don't know whether she suspected him or not. Here she is going around the house uttering these curses. Now, the cursings and the blessings that we see from her lips are a world apart from the curses and the blessings that we see in the law. But she is obviously using this almost as an occultic curse, in my opinion. And she is using that as a means of, of probably intimidating or threatening. And if she suspected her son, which she may well have had reason to do, then she's putting the, the hex on him. And, and finally he's going to cave in and he's going to confess to his mother. But it's her curses his confession, and frankly, neither of them come, away, come leave us with a great sense of satisfaction. <laughs> she hasn't done well by her cursing, and I'm not sure he's done well by his confession. He does not say, I have sinned against the Lord. It's rather he wants to turn off Mama's curse, and so he comes with the 1,100 pieces of silver in his hands. She receives that gift back and then dedicates a portion of that back to God, so that idols may be made of it. And she pronounces a blessing upon him. Now my sense as I read that is that she wants the blessings to reverse the curse. She's pronounced the curse on the thief. Now she finds out for sure the thief is her son. So she pronounces these blessings and she produces these idols in a way that will be a blessing to her son. So her way of blessing her son is to make more, and I emphasize the word more, idols for him to have in his house of idols. That's the blessing of, of mama for her son. And then you know, and I'll emphasize that from verse 5 because it says that Micah owned a shrine. He made an ephod and some personal idols. Those are household gods that would be like we've seen before. Interestingly, uh, remember Rachel had her household gods? Uh, and 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 she uh, stole them or took them away uh, when she left Laban's household. She took those with her. So apparently there were the false gods that may be more generally worshipped, and then you had some sort of household gods around, sort of your private collection. And and uh, Micah had those, and the Ephod, of course, brings up memories, does it not, of Gideon and the Ephod which he had. So he's got this house of gods with this collection of idols. And now he's going to add two more that Mama is donating her silver for. So the silversmith will fashion these uh, idols and add them to his collection. So I take it that you would not want to say that Micah was the cream of the crop. Uh, in Israel in those days, and he obviously has, has already gone far down the path. And I wouldn't want to be bragging too much about his home life either. With with a mother like he's got, they're in trouble. All right, let's move then to the uh, to the next section uh, that we see. By the way, the Net Bible says uh, Micah hires a professional. And, and I have to admit, that really does kind of tickle me uh, that he's going to get his own personalized uh, priest. Here's a young Levite now that's introduced to us, nameless at this stage of the game. He is introduced to us, and I call it the priesthood for sale or rent. And, and, uh, and here he is in Bethlehem. But he leaves Bethlehem and makes his way out now to the hill country of Ephraim in search of a place to be. The interesting parallelism is between the young Levite who's looking for a place and the Danites who are looking for a place, one individual, the other collective, a tribe, but they're both looking for a place. Now, you have to say to yourself, what's a guy like you doing in a place, or probably better, in places like this? Bethlehem was not one of the cities set apart for priests to live in. So even dwelling in Bethlehem was not really where he should have been, but he leaves there apparently because there's a there's a, a jobs crisis in that thing. Unemployment's now 10.5 percent in Bethlehem, and so he moves on and he looks for for a place to be where he can have a job and security and all of those things, and he comes to the uh, hill country of Ephraim. And it is there that he's going to meet up with a man named Micah, the one that we have been introduced to in those earlier verses. I call this Micah's bed and breakfast. And the reason I do is because somehow everybody that's going that way ends up at Micah's house. I mean, the spies are going to end up there on their way. So he must have been, so to speak, on the freeway or somehow. And they, they seem to spend the night there or spend some time there. So for whatever reason... Micah has this place that people show up at. And here's this young Levite who now makes his way, finds himself there. And interestingly, uh, Micah says to the young Levite, what are you doing here? Which is exactly what the Danites are going to say to him later. (laughs) What are you doing here? Sort of sounds to me like God speaking to Elijah when he's out in the desert. And he's saying to him, man, what are you doing here? He shouldn't have been there. Now, coming back to, to his unemployment for a minute, it seems to me that whatever his personal economic situation was, he made the wrong choice. But remember that, that the, uh, the Levites had no possession of land of their own. They were given certain cities and certain surrounding lands for their cattle and so on. But basically, the Levites' inheritance was the gifts of the Israelites to sustain them in, in their Levitical priesthood ministry. So we would assume that the Israelites in their current spiritual state are surely not keeping up with their obligations, and it has been reflected in the need of this young uh, a Levite. Granted, he should not have left uh, nevertheless, but he did. So he meets up with Micah. Micah asks him what he's doing there, and he says, Well, (laughs) I'm looking for a place. I'm looking for a job. I'm looking for for, uh, somewhere to be. And and Micah, I remember, not only had his house of gods, but he had set aside one of his sons as the priest. But he knew that his son wasn't really a a full-fledged, good housekeeping seal of approval Levite. So when this Levite comes his way, he says to himself, Aha, now I have an authentic Levite that will be my priest. And, and actually, by the way, the word for this man is a young man. And, and I take it that Micah is older and because and, he's got a son who's serving as, as his priest up to that point in time. So here is this older man saying to this young, wet behind the ears Levite, You be a father to me. Uh, and 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 be a priest, and it's almost like he's saying, "Be a prophet and a priest to me. Speak to me, telling me what God has to say." And 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 I take it by the way, it would be like a mechanic going into a shop. He has his own uh, tools, uh, perhaps. But but when he comes into Micah's place, here you've got a God shop set up. You've got the, you've got the ephod and you've got these various kinds of images. Man, all he needs is just a pro who knows how to use those tools and he's really set, uh, in, in Micah's mind. So he brings him along and everybody seems to be doing very well. The young Levite's got his job security and notice that there is a father-son relationship between the young Levite and Micah. He not only brings him into his house, but he deals with him as though he was one of his sons. One of his sons used to be his priest. Now his priest is like a son. And you want to say, who could have it better, in, 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 from the Levites' frame of, of reference, who could have it better than him to have a place, to have security? I, I, I'm tempted to really go into this, but he's got a whole economic package. You know, he's got his housing allowance, his travel allowance, uh, all of this stuff. Everything's being paid for. He's got the whole thing. Probably, if he were living in our, our days, he'd get an IRA as well. He'd have all his retirement. He's got everything where he is with Micah. Things are coming up roses for that young Levite. So he thinks. And then Micah himself thinks. This is the key to his prosperity. And so he says to himself... Now I know God will make me rich because I have this Levite as my priest. Is that not a tragic statement for an Israelite to be making? He's got his house of gods. Now he's got his authentic seal of approval priest to, to, to be his own personal representative with God. Now he knows he's on the gravy train. Chapter uh, 18 verses 1 through 31, the Danites promised land. Now, there are probably some things that we need to know as we begin to to look at that. One is we need to keep in mind, as I suggested earlier, the earlier accounts of Israel's possession of the land, of their sending out spies, and so on. What's interesting is there is a kind of a contrast. You remember the 12 spies are sent out uh, by Moses, then the two spies are sent out by Joshua. They end up in the city at the house of a prostitute, right? And and these five spies end up uh, in the house. Well, you wouldn't want to say a prostitute unless you're speaking of a Levite, uh, but you, but certainly a place where they should not be. The difference is that that prostitute Rahab was a woman of faith, and she actually contributed toward what they were doing. Uh, this will not be the case when they come to the, the house of Micah. But the other thing we need to notice is that the text uh, says to us, and the author puts it perhaps in the best possible terms, that they had no, as yet, they had no possession. Now, you could read that as though their land had not been assigned to them, but if you read in Joshua, you would know that's not true. And if you read in Judges chapter 1, what you discover is when you go through all the tribes beginning with Judah and Simeon and you work your way down, you get to Dan. And the problem with Dan was that when he went to to, to possess his land, what happened is that the Amorites were stronger and they literally forced them up into the hills so they could not come down and farm the plains and whatever. They were in dire straits. But my point is this. It isn't that they didn't have a place they should have taken. They had a place they should have taken and they didn't take it. So the problem with these Danites is they have doubted and distrusted God and they have not come and possessed the land that God gave them. So here they are in difficult straits and they're looking for some easier way out. They're looking for some way to provide themselves with land that doesn't take the risk that they've got in dealing with the people in their own allotted possession. So they're now out on the hunt, and they're sent. By the way, do you notice that they're sent from this area of Zorah and Eshtaol? That's Samson's territory. Now, that's where Samson was buried. Now, there's going to be a little bit of a question in terms of the chronology of this and whether or not this is actually before Samson's time or after. And a lot of that has to do with the uh, genealogy of this young priest that we'll get at uh, in a little bit. But it is interesting that you have this same area that was Samson's uh, turf. If indeed Samson had already lived, if we are in chronological order here, then what you see is Samson spent all his time chasing the girls, but in all of the years that he was the judge, he never helped his own tribe possess their own land. Is that not a tragedy? He never helped his own people possess their own land. As strong and as tough as he was, it didn't happen during Samson's lifetime. Okay, so here they are. They, they, they feel that they're in dire straits, and so they select five men, and they say, Go out and explore the land. And you have this same feeling like they're going out just like the 12 spies, just like the two spies. And then they come and they spend the night at Micah's house, Micah's bed and breakfast. And so here they are. But when they hear this young Levite, they recognize from his voice, no doubt his accent. They're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. What what are you doing here? it would be like somebody with a deep southern drawl and you meet them up in northern Canada and, and you say to yourself, wait a minute, this isn't your turf. What are you doing here? And and uh, here's the interesting thing. It's a question that each should have asked the other. The question that was asked of the Danites should have, been, should have been asked of the Danites is, what are you doing here? Meaning, why aren't you back home possessing the inheritance God's given to you? What are you doing here? This isn't your possession. This isn't your inheritance. What are you doing here? And they say to him, what are you doing here? Well, the Levite shouldn't have been there either because he should have been in one of the Levitical cities, but he was off seeking his own well-being. So here you have two sets of people, this one Levite who is in dire straits and who through a pragmatic way of thinking is out looking for his own good. And here's a tribe who's in dire straits, and they're also looking for a place to be. So they say, what's your business here? And he says to them, well, I'm I'm working for Micah. He hired me and I became his priest. And these guys' eyes light up. Now, you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and again in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the law spoke about those people who would be leading people astray. What should a godly Israelite have done to Micah, to that city, to the little town or village that he was in, or to the Levite, they should have put him to death because they were leading people astray. They now find out from listening to my from the, the listening to the young Levite. They find out this is a guy who is in a place where he shouldn't be. But what they hear is this guy's a legitimate Levite. This guy is in a place and he's for hire. And so all they have to do is raise the ante. Uh, so anyway, but at this point, they're saying to themselves, well, if this guy's a Levite and he has connections with God, and here's this, this ephod and all these gods here, then why shouldn't we check with him and see whether God's going to prosper us as we go ahead and search out the land? And so he gives them a declaration and he says, uh, go with confidence, the Lord will be with you on your mission. Now, it's a little difficult to tell whether he did that off the cuff, which he might have done, and just said, hey, for ten bucks, I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. He could have done that. Or he could have gone in and used his tools, and used the ephod, and gone through the rigmarole of, of finding some kind of, of revelation, at least satisfying to them. But they now believe they have God's blessing, so the five men go on to Laish. And by the way, if you're looking at a, at a Bible map and you see Israel's territory, you'll notice that Ephraim is, is, is uh, to the left or the west of Judah, and it presses on close to the Mediterranean Sea. So it's moving that way. When you look at the tr- where the territory is that the Danites are going to go, it's way north, 75, 80 miles north. It's way out of their way. So what they're doing is they're looking for a land that is not their territory, but a land that they could more easily possess. So they head out to Leish and they find this place, and the people there are living securely. They're undisturbed, no no conqueror. In other words, they're easy pickings. They're people who don't have any allies. They're isolated. All you have to do is just go in and and these people are vulnerable if you want to, to take a look at it. In other words, they're exactly the opposite of what the Canaanites were to the Israelites. When the Israelites went in, they said, this is a wonderful land. It is a fruitful land. Look at all the produce. The question wasn't whether the land of Canaan was a good land. The question is, how tough are the Canaanites? Well, they had giants and they had fortified cities. And so the Israelites said, there's no way we're going to whip these guys. They are bigger and stronger than we are. That was the issue. You have just exactly the opposite. These guys are saying, they're wimps. They're wimps. We can take them. 600 guys are going to come, and they're going to take that city. They're going to take it for themselves. So they look upon it, and the vulnerability of this city, as well as its prosperity, is what's the precise thing for which they're looking. So they go back to their tribe, Boy, what a contrast with, it, with the ten tribes and the twelve tribes, the ten spies and the two spies who come back. These guys come back to their people. And they say, come on, let's go attack them, for their land is very good. And then they're basically saying, what are you sitting on your hands for? What are you sitting around for? Let's get going. This place is easy. It's the place that we need to be. So they then begin to make their way with 600 Danites, uh, back armed, and they leave from Zora and Eshtehol that area, and they they make their way back up, and there they end at Micah's house again. Now, when they get to Micah's house, he's the one, of course. Uh, the The Levite is the one who has given them their favorable prophecy. So, from all outward appearances, this young Levite is connected. Levites connected. He's, he's connected to God. He's given them a revelation. They found just the way that, that he promised it would be. So they come back, and now they come to Micah's house. And the five guys say to the 600, say, we ought to tell you that this guy Micah has a little house over here, and he's got all of his household gods, and he's got his own Levite for a priest. Now, figure out what you want to do about that. I don't think they're agonizing about whether to destroy it or whether to to go in there. They're saying, this is easy pickings, too. If we're going to go pick off a city that's vulnerable, look at what we've got here. We've got our own set-up religion. All we have to do is just take it and the priest. So they they go along and, and uh, they begin talking and the young Levite is apparently out standing at the gate, maybe trying to be inaccessible, but eventually the, the guys are cleaning out. The five guys are cleaning out the gods and finally the young Levite dutifully says, What are you guys doing? And they said to him, Just keep quiet, partner. We got a better offer for you. We're going to pay you more. We're going to take care of you better will let you keep on, and you can have a bigger congregation. Better salary, better benefits. I mean, isn't it better to serve a bigger congregation than a smaller one? You get to serve not only a man and his household, you get to serve an entire tribe. A fruitful ministry is there for you. I don't want to be too cynical, but I have to stop and say, the longer I have dealt with people who are looking for jobs in ministry, the more intent they have become, in my opinion, on benefits. Not needs, but benefits. And somehow I have seen very few people in my lifetime who have ever worked their way down in ministry. Somehow the bigger church and the bigger influence and all that is just is just powerful. And I'm not saying that people that move up are wrong in doing it, that everyone who moves up. I'm saying for this guy... It spelled the kind of success he wanted and he is very happy when they make that offer. All of a sudden his loyalty to Micah, who is like a father to him, a man with whom he's made some kind of contract, all of that goes out the window and man, he was for hire and now he's got a better price and he is on the road again. So they take the things you notice and, and they're, they're on their way and <laughs> And and finally, the people around the area. I think that Micah's little house of gods was probably something that he shared or rented. Uh, In other words, for a fee, he may have let other people uh, in the neighborhood have access or use of it. And so the people in the neighborhood, as these Danites are now making their way off, they come in pursuit and they say, what do you think you're doing taking this stuff away? And it's obvious that Micah is amongst them. And they say, What are you saying? And he says, You know, well, what do you think I'm saying? You stole the gods, he says, the gods that I made. You took my idols and you're stealing from me, and what will I have left if I don't have them? Is that not a tragic statement? A, he acknowledges he's an idol maker. And B, He's saying, if my gods are gone, I have nothing left. Everything in which I hope, all of my security rests in these idols. And by the way, the idols aren't, aren't able to protect him from 600 men. 600 men. His idols aren't any good. <laughs> they haven't protected. But what I really love is this. Here's a guy who is a thief, right? 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. And now he's protesting you're robbing me. How could you do this terrible thing? You're robbing me. And you're thinking, yeah, right. All right, so they tell him basically he better be quiet because there are some guys in this group that they are saying that are mean dudes. And if you keep talking, they're just going to bump you off and all of your family's going with you. So keep quiet and let it go. So off they go now to possess their land and uh, they make this young Levite their priest, and they they find the city exactly as it's been described, defenseless, and so those 600 men now take possession of it, and they name the city Dan, of course, after their own tribe. So now they found their territory, not the territory allocated to them by God, not the territory for which they have to fight and trust God, but the territory that's so vulnerable they can go in and just walk over it. And now they set up uh, their own uh, idolatrous worship. But here are the, here's the, the real uh, sort of revelation that, that the authors held out for the end. The Danites, in verse 30 of, of chapter 18, the Danites worship the carved image. Jonathan, descendant of Gershom, son of Moses, and his descendants, served as priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the exile. little question about which exile perhaps that's talking about. But the real question is, it actually says the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. If indeed there are no breaks in that genealogy, then this is, early, this is earlier on, and it may have been pre-Samson days. But the point of it is either way, whether he 's a descendant and a great grandson or whatever it is of moses isn 't this amazing Now we find out this unnamed priest is Jonathan and he 's a descendant of moses i mean what a, what a what a horrible blow to all of a sudden realize that that here moses 's own offspring are corrupted to the point where they 're going to be a, a generation of priests. Uh, 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 that are going to serve there in that place uh, indefinitely. By the way, do you remember when Jeroboam and Rehoboam split the kingdom, the divided kingdom? Jeroboam decides that unless he sets up a false religious system, that the, that the people of the north will keep going down to Jerusalem to worship. And so he sets up two places of worship with golden calves as the object. The northerly place was Dan. So here you are, this place that had its false worship. It's just perfect to set up that, uh, again, false worship that's going to happen. The other thing that we notice is this. Verse 31, they worshiped Micah's carved image the whole time God's authorized shrine was in Shiloh. Shiloh was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was to be kept until they went in and and established, until David would establish Jerusalem as the place where the temple would be built and where the, where the, where Israel's worship would take place. When you see in that text in Deuteronomy 12 where it talks about you are to worship in that designated place that God's going to make known, it's not yet established. But where Israel was to come to worship was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant was at Shiloh. And in whose tribal possession was Shiloh? Ephraim. I don't know. We don't know the exact locations, but my point is it could have been five miles. It could have been 10 miles. It could have been 5,000 feet from the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. Here is this house of, of worship <clears throat> that had been set up by Micah in the whole country uh, of Ephraim that we're, that's talked about in the first part of, of chapter 18. And it wasn't, it wasn't as though the people of, of Israel would say, it was so hard to get to Shiloh. It was so distant to get to Shiloh. Certainly not Micah to say that. The place that God had established for worship was within easy reach. And yet what they do is establish their own place of worship, their own priesthood uh, that's taking place. And you say to yourself, man, things have gotten really bad. Okay, let's take a look at some comments uh, in conclusion. Why is the author hesitant to give the reader a, a more definitive uh, statement of what all was wrong? I want to confess to you, I have very good friends that use a, a note system where it has a sentence and then it'll have a, a keyword left out and you fill in all the blanks. I want to confess to you, as much as I love them, I hate that system of teaching. I hate it that all you have to do is listen for the one key word and fill it in. It's like whoever is speaking is doing all your thinking for you. When I come to this, I don't find a, a, a little set where I fill in the little blanks, a word here and a word there that tells me where. You know why? Because this author wants me to think for myself. This author doesn't want to do all of his readers' thinking. He's saying to them, I'm giving you the basic facts... Now, you people have the law. You people have the history of Israel. You have all of this backdrop. Figure it out for yourselves. What is wrong with this picture? He's given us enough of a clue. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. But what is it that's wrong? And the author is saying, think about that. Agonize about that. When you come to the New Testament, Jesus, when he taught... He left people scratching their heads. They went away saying, what in the world did he mean by that? He didn't give them three points in a poem and and send them on their way and think they'd had it all figured out. He wanted them to agonize because dealing with the truth is your responsibility and not just mine. The teacher ought to be giving people questions to ponder and point them in the right direction, but they ought to be thinking about that. I love this guy. He forces us to step back and say, I know there's something wrong with it. Now I've got to figure out what that is. Good for him. Note how far Israel has fallen. At the beginning of the the book of Judges, you have uh, Israel failing to eradicate the, uh, the Canaanites from the land. You have the Israelites then being oppressed by foreign powers and tempted by foreign gods. And now you've got Israel corrupting themselves. These are not the priests of Baal. This is a Levite who is for rent, and he is willing to go and use the ephod and and the teraphim and and these these various gods that are misrepresentations uh, of the one true God. And the term Yahweh is used. Incidentally, the author does not use the word Yahweh in his representation as as you would expect him to do. You would expect the author to use Yahweh when he speaks of God and Elohim, the generic sort of Allah term. You would expect him to use Elohim when the pagans are speaking. Sometimes they do use that term. But the mother of Micah uses the term Yahweh, blessed of Yahweh be you. The tragic thing is that Israel is not here worshiping another God, they are worshiping the true God in a way that is diametrically opposed to his character and to his commands. That's syncretism, that's adding something to religion. And I'd like to suggest to you that that's one of the big problems in Christianity today. Some of of the scariest people in the world are not those people who hold some other faith, and they're talking about Buddha or whoever it is that's some distant God. The ones that scare me are the ones that talk about Jesus, the ones who talk about God, the God of Israel. But they've added or they've taken away in such a way that now there's a syncretism of, of of the culture, of false religion, of whatever that's blended with that. And, and that to me is distressing. For example, let me give you some. There are secular human systems, especially in, in hard economic times. There are secular ways in which people raise money. It's amazing to me how quickly we baptize those secular methods into the church. And we try to find Christian ways, sounding ways, of raising money or of spending money where the reality is what God says about money is different. Different. And, and yes, there are things that overlap, but but there is also that clear area of difference. There are principles of management. There are principles of growth. Sometimes when you go to Christian seminars, you think you're in a business seminar. They don't seem to be talking much about prayer and about dependence upon the Spirit of God. Sometimes psychology will be the syncretism. All truth is God's truth, some will say. It's true, but only this truth, the truth that's in God's Word, is known truth. That's the truth by which we live and walk. And other stuff may or may not be true, but this is the truth that God's wanted us to know. We need to put it to the test. But there's another area that's happening today, I think, and that's what I would call privatization. It's not a new novel term with me. Privatization. And that is, somehow you can have your religious faith the way you want it. It caters to the individualism and the autonomy of our day. But it's basically saying to people, well, you just pick the way you want to to, to worship God. Just Just pick that view. That's your personal religious view. Well, it is their personal religious view. It doesn't mean it's right. Syncretism says, here's how you do it. Syncretism doesn't say, here's one central place of worship, and this is where I'm going to be worshipped, and this is how I'm going to be worshipped. That brings me to ecclesiology, which means a fancy $5 word for the church. Some people would say, well, you know, the Bible just has all kinds of room for freedom and flexibility. It does have room within boundaries for freedom and flexibility. But I suggest to you that many people come to the New Testament and they say when, we, when, when you start reading in Acts and you start reading in 1 Corinthians, well, that was just for then. That was just, that was just the way it was then. That's not what Paul said. Paul said, this is what I do everywhere in every church. The way in which we do, we do church is weird to most people. Is it not? The way we do church is weird to most people. It's not weird to the Scriptures. And what I'm saying to you is, I would rather do it as closely as possible to what God prescribes than to go winging it on our own because somebody has said it works. Ecclesiology is doing things God's way, and that's not syncretism. Why the need for, or why the emphasis on the need for a king? I think what you're going to see as the story of the Old Testament unfolds is this. It keeps narrowing things down. You know, first of all, you have the the Messiah that's going to come from the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. Then it's going to be from the seed of of Judah in, in late Genesis. And then it's going to be of the seed of David. And you see this narrowing down. But what we see is the failure of men to fulfill the role. When I, when I look at, uh, I'm jumping ahead to my Christmas thing a little bit, but when I look at the book of Hebrews, it never occurred to me the relationship of the book of Hebrews to the book of Judges. When you come to the book of, of Hebrews, you're talking about the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is supreme in the sense that he is the ultimate revelation, God's revelation, the full and final revelation. Genesis 1, or, I mean, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and Hebrews 2 basically one through four, are talking about God revealing himself fully and finally in Jesus. He is the ultimate revelation. You might say he's the ultimate prophet. He's the ultimate priest. And so when you look at Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood, he takes, as it were, the best that he can find, the writer to the Hebrews, and he just says, Jesus is a vastly superior priest to any of those. He takes the ultimate leader, Moses, and he says he's greater than him. You take the greatest men of the Old Testament, and when you set them against the Lord Jesus Christ, those men fade away. What I'm saying to you is the book of Judges gives us the worst of them. You know, we look not at Moses and not at Aaron, but we're looking at Levites like Jonathan who are selling out their priesthood. We look at, at, at men like Samson who have God's strength and yet prostitute that for their own advantage rather than serving their people. So when I read the book of Judges and then I look at those accounts about the incarnation of our Lord and the the temptation of our Lord and the revelation of who he is, I say to myself, Wow, when you look at Judges, you see the worst that men can be. When you look at the incarnation of Jesus, you see the best that one could ever have hoped for. That's where the Old Testament is leading us. It's leading us to an appetite for a leader who will be the kind of leader that will save. And what we discover is it won't even be David. David will be a great leader, but he himself will fail and fall. It's only going to be Jesus. And the Old Testament just keeps pointing us in that direction. A lesson from the use of the word Yahweh. It's interesting, and I guess I want to say, one of the things Piper uh, had a message on, on modernism. And, uh, and one of the things he said was that false doctrine also often comes by remaining to use the key theological words. They still use the right words. They just don't have the same meaning or function. And I was thinking about that with the word Yahweh. If you listened, you might be inclined to say, well, look, you know, Micah's mama said Yahweh. She must be a true believer. No, she isn't. She uses the right words. She doesn't have the right theology, and she doesn't live the right life. Be careful. People may use the right words. They may understand the words that you would identify with as being evangelical and orthodox that doesn't always mean they're with you when they do well i think my time's up and probably i'm out of gas anyway so let me just close in prayer father thank you for this uh, this text thank you for for the way in which in spite of men and all of their failings you have remained faithful to your word you have remained faithful to your covenant promises, and you have finally brought us the great King. We can no longer say that there's been no King, because He has come. He has given us the redemption that comes through trusting in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. He has come and He has become our great high priest, one who never fails, who never dies, who is seated at your right hand, Father. And we thank you for him. We see the folly of people who are trusting in false religion. I think of Micah and his trust that he will prosper because he has one in his service uh, who tells him the right things. Father, if there's anyone here trusting in anyone or anything apart from the shed blood of the Lord Jesus... May they come to trust in him. Thank you for this Christmas season. And as we look at all of these failings in men, help us to rejoice in the one who has come, who is without sin, without failure, without guile, who has given his life and given his blood so that sinners may be forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.